Dr. Josh. <laughs> you bet. How are you, Dean? Pretty good. Man, I can't tell you. We are so grateful that you agreed to join us today. Oh. Thank you very much. No thing at all. I hope your contacts are working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I got I to gotta get new ones because, uh, I don't know, the right one is well, bugging I, me like crazy. So. I assume with all the readings you do, the ancient stuff. It's frustrating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, what can I say? First, uh, congratulations on the twins. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And congratulations on the book, man. So Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> been quite a year. <laughs> that was a brain crusher. I uh, read it yeah. twice, and I'm going to have to read it nice. again and again. <laughs> I mean, you packed the punch. Yeah, it's, uh, it was, it, I, think it, I think it turned out okay. I think it turned out okay. No, I, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I think it was about time that someone wrote a book like that, mm. and uh, you jumped in. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, it's like volume two is going to cover all the Paul Copani stuff, you know, so mm. like genocide and violence and... So um, can you tell us the genesis of the project? I mean, the, the title says the, what, uh, you know, the, you meant exactly what the title said. When I, you know, I, I thought it was going to be like a general thing. But when I read it, it was like a very easy to read, but yet also very academic. And it, it, yeah, I mean, I think that um, sort of the, you know, when we started the YouTube channel, I think that's when um, yes started noticing that. Christian apologists online, uh, or really taking notice of them and how they, I don't know, they try to use the Hebrew Bible in particular in ways that it, it doesn't really work. It doesn't fit with what's actually going on in the text. And, uh, and then the, the apology, the apologetics that they make, um, to try to defend things like slavery and violence and all that stuff. Um, it becomes, uh, it becomes really problematic. So uh, the videos themselves on the channel were initially meant to sort of deal with the, some of those issues. Uh, but then I figured I'd done all this research into these particular topics. And given my background, um, I could probably bring something together that would be sort of a, a resourceful tool. I mean, a, a, a good resource. Sorry, I, I I was up for about five hours last night with the twins. So I'm sorry. If I'm, a little, if I'm a little off, I apologize. I have kids but, myself. Um, I understand. <laughs> But um, no, I, I I thought that by putting something together that initially it was just supposed to be, let's talk about some hot topic, you know, hot button issues. But then as I, as I kind of wandered through it, I thought, you know, it, it would be good to just have something that would give everybody, in particular atheists and skeptics, but anybody that picked it up, uh, this broad background to the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. And so that's sort of where the first half of the book came from is uh, wanting to make it a much more robust resource for somebody who maybe isn't necessarily looking for a strict introduction to the Hebrew Bible. Cause I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, hey, Tim is joining but, us. Uh, <laughs> hey, so I'm like, hey, had to make some coffee, but yeah, I, uh, it, it, it's now, it's meant to be sort of a, uh, a one-stop shop for an atheist or a skeptic who is particularly online. Yeah. Because this is where these arguments all come up, but particularly online or around like the, the dining room table at Thanksgiving, uh, people that are interested in debating some of these more 
common topics that come up that are brought up by apologists. Yeah. Well, it was definitely an, an eye opener. I mean, especially the chapter with the, the slavery thing. I was like, I did not know any of that, you know, because, well, I come from a Muslim background, so it was, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's, they have the same shit, <laughs> you know, in there. <laughs> uh, they always, you know, sell the catchphrases because as we progress, you know, modern times, they start finding, you know, back in the days, they never apologized. Now they are trying to find explanations for stuff. They keep saying, you know, yeah. Islam came and abolished slavery, which is not, they did not. I mean, it, it codified it and just, you know, said, yes, let's keep doing it. And, and then in the Bible, you know, I never thought that they had such thing, but that chapter was like very intense. I think the scariest part of the whole slavery discussion is that what you end up with, if you are a typical online apologist, and even some that do writing, um, you end up walking away from the discussion having defended a form of slavery. Yeah. It's really weird. It it's is. just a weird position to end up in. <laughs> you know, because what you're, what the, the arguments always go like this. You know, how can you, atheists will say, how can you uh, worship a God who, you know, would condemn shellfish? but can't find the time in all of his laws to say, don't own people yeah. as property. Um, to which the apologist always says, well, let's start off with a couple of things. Instead of just saying slavery is bad, uh, any kind of slavery is bad. Um, what they end up saying is, well, I mean, think about the type of slavery that, I don't even know that I would really call it slavery. It's more like debt servitude. Well, I mean, just stop for a second and think, what is debt servitude? What is debt slavery? It's I loaned you money. You couldn't pay it back. So now you become my slave until you can pay it back. I mean, I don't know if we want to be defending that too terribly much. Like, it's, it's, it's not good. Um, For real. So uh, that's what ends up happening. And it's, uh, it's really scary to me, honestly, because um, as I talk about in the book, a lot of the legal rationalizations and the the the, you know, the way that judges came to the way that judges came to decisions, yeah, the tensions that they were wrestling with in the antebellum South are oftentimes the same things that the biblical uh, writers are wrestling with. That was how do you have that, a master? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That was a, that was the the thing that I never thought to hear when you put the antebellum South with that. I mean, I have never. Never even crossed my mind. I was like, wait a minute, what is he doing here? And yeah, and it, it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, there are ob obviously there are like, there are differences, uh, maybe not. We don't, I, there are times that we just don't have enough information in the Hebrew Bible, but on some of the more salient points, it's incredibly similar. Uh, so, you know, the thing that both the Antebellum South and the Hebrew Bible are wrestling with, the tension that they're they're facing is, well, masters have to be able to physically beat their slaves. And they have to be able to do that, right? That's the logic. They have to be able to do that because whether you're a debt slave and you're there for a set period of time, six years, uh, or if you're a chattel slave and you're there indefinitely, you know, it's, it's it, what's your motivation, right? Well, I got to be here for six years, so I'm going to do the least that I can and get away with it. And a chattel slave, it's worse. I, I'm here forever, you know, so I'm going to find my groove. You know, and, and do do the, as little work that I can, which is exactly what I would do. Right? I mean, <laughs> we all would do, I suspect. Um, 
And so masters, then the law is the, the, the law is then this is all bullshit, right? It, I mean, this is crazy. It is 100% um, bullshit. But, but the way the law is, is working with this is they're going, all right, so we, we have to, we have to make sure the masters have the rights, right to beat their slaves. Right. But, but we can't have them abusing them and murdering them. Yeah. And that's yeah. crazy. Um, that's exactly what's going on in passages like Exodus 21, right? So, I mean, if you think about, if you think about what uh, the passage says, if a man beats his male or female slave with a wooden rod, yeah, and they die immediately, it's obvious, you know, it, it, according to uh, I think what, what most scholars would say about the passage, that what the text is trying to do is trying to mitigate abuse. And yeah. so, all right, look, if you if you have a slave and you hit them with a wooden rod and they die immediately, it implies that you were doing more than just correcting them or trying to motivate them yeah. or something. Um, this was more than punishment. You were doing, you know, you were you were intending harm, uh, serious harm. And so then the punishment is, you know, you probably the punishment there is that you're killed. However, uh, if the, the slave survives a day or two, well, then there is no punishment. Uh, because uh, he he is his, he's his money right he's his property, and so the rationale there is right, we're we're in a world <clears throat> we're in the ancient world and uh, it can be difficult to determine. So let's say you know I I, I beat my slave uh, in a normal way for the moderate standard, correction standard way <laughs> right the standard stuff, <clears throat> and something happens where he gets an infection oh crap right or uh, and of course they're not, they don't that would have been infection is, but, um, you know, it's th there's some, something else that intervenes during those couple of days yeah. that brings about the slave's death. Well, now it's like mitigating circumstances. <clears throat> All right. Well, I guess what we have to do is we have to assume that the, the master was just giving moderate correction and that, you know, something else intervened and brought about the slave's death. And so we can't, we can't then hold him responsible because he was just doing what Proverbs yeah. encourages him to do. That's right? true. Um, and this is exactly what we see in the antebellum South. I mean, if you read what the judges are saying. Yeah, yeah. The judges. I, I they, think they, they, I think the most terrifying, I mean, as horrible as it is, you know, the corporal punishment thing. When you were detailing the, the stuff about, like, you know, you go in as a slave, your master gives you a wife, you have kids, your six years is over. Okay, you're out, but the, your kid's or wife stays in there. It's like I think to me that was like more cruel and terrible mm -hmm. that such regulation exists versus you know getting beaten up, which is terrible. But this one is like even takes the cake. I think the conversation start it stops when you when you yeah. know that that's it. We're done. Yeah, <laughs> and it's <clears throat> it's interesting to hear apologists sort of try to work through that passage. I mentioned Paul Copan earlier. I don't know if you've read his book. He's got a no. new one out, but it's got a moral monster is the title of it. And he has two chapters dedicated to slavery in it. And he's a super nice guy. I've talked to him, <clears throat> but it's, it's sort of the standard, it's a standard apologetics that you hear. And I, I think a lot of people are actually getting their arguments from his book. Um, and he, about that passage in particular, he says, so, you know, what is the, the slave faced with? Well, now I'm paraphrasing, but <clears throat> he could... He could leave and uh, go save up his shekels to find a place to live and wait for his wife and children to have their term of service, you know, expire, and then they'd all live together. 
uh, or he could, you know, save up more money and uh, and go buy out, you know, the 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 contract early, pay off the debt for his wife and his children, um, you know, or he could say, you know what, I got it pretty good here. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sign up for life. Well, I mean, first of all, there's this underlying assumption that the wife and the children are debt slaves. Yeah. They're not. They're chattel slaves. There is no term of service that ends with them. Yeah, they're there. Um, so automatically, it's, I mean, the passage doesn't make sense at all if they're debt slaves. Because, and, and this is what I would encourage people to do in these circumstances. Just try to walk it through. You know, put it, put it uh, like add characters in your mind and say, okay, so Frank is, you know, the, the debt slave that goes in for six years. And he's single when he goes in. And about two years in, the master says, hey, here's Susie. This is my other slave, right? You guys, you know, get down with the get down. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, Frank and Susie get married uh, and, and, and now they have a couple of kids. So six years goes by and the master says, all right, Frank, You're it's, out. Been, it's been great, man. It's been great. Um, but, you know, Susie and the kids, they're my property, right? That's how this works. Um, I've I've even heard people say, well, I mean, Frank, you know, the guy, he knew that he wasn't going to get to keep his wife and kids. He did it willingly. It was voluntary. Jesus. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so the, the, the point here is that uh, the text is is protect that text is geared toward. Uh, protecting that right of a debt slave to go free after six years, but making sure that people realize that the master, that, that that's, 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 this is part of what slavery was for is to make more slaves. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a business. That's what it did. Yeah. yeah. It's a business. So, so the idea that um, he'd be able to go back and, because think about it. Let's if if in this scenario we assume that Susie and the and the kids are contingent upon a debt, right? Their slavery is contingent upon a debt. Why in the world would Frank sign up for life? I mean, why would he do that? It just doesn't make sense. No, right. In the passage, it doesn't make sense. He would say, "All right, well, look. At, at worst case, you know, he gave me he gave me uh, Susie in like my fifth year." All right, so all right, I got what four or five more years on Susie's contract, maybe, and then she gets then she gets released. So it sucks, but I'll just you know I'll just kind of hang out uh, and work, and and then she'll get released. No, I mean it just doesn't make sense. The passage is very clear that these are these are not debt slaves. Well, um, you know, it's the same thing for you know in the Muslim crap fast. I mean, slavery it's still up now legally. If there's a war and everything, you can conduct slavery business like a muslim nation i mean it is there you take you sell you kill that's it it's still live wow. it, it was never taken out you know there's no argument there's apologetics like you know in christianity now in islam a lot they are coming so hard because they realize it's so embarrassing and you can't touch it so you have to deal with it so you have to explain it you can't just like you know uh, put an amendment and all that stuff in that spirit, like I've been always telling my friend Tim, you know, we need we need to adjust our terminology in the recent times. We've been always like you know bashing on religion and talking. I think we need to be specific and say the Abrahamic religions, mm. because 
since you're and correct us if we're wrong, your whole Assyriology and Mesopotamian history is very important a lot today because it unlocks and answers a lot of things. Don't you agree there's a difference between ancient religions and the way they conducted themselves versus these three oddities? Oh, yeah. So we have to, when, when we say religion, we say Abraham, Abrahamic religions because things change. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely by later in like the second temple period, the end of the, the first millennium, the movement is definitely toward like more monotheistic, henotheistic uh, with, you know, with uh, the Hebrew Bible. And this is just not a thing in, for example, Mesopotamian religion. You have a whole pantheon, right? Yeah. Uh, like with the Greek gods, Roman gods. Um, so this idea that you'd have, I mean, sure, there there can be like a head deity, like On or Enlil, mm. depending on the, the myth, um, could be like at the top. But I mean, they have their own weaknesses. You know, they have their own characteristics that are very human. Um, I mean, God, Enlil sends the flood because there's too much noise. And he can't <laughs> yeah, sleep. I read that. Right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. They can't even complain about a lot of noise. So, <laughs> and, like and that's what. Up, sorry, that's like going upstairs to shoot your neighbor because they're like stomping. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 really not that different. Um, and what's I think what's interesting for me. In, in a position that I'm in, having studied the seriology and also Hebrew Bible, um, is that now it's very clear the influence that Mesopotamia had, um, not, and not only Mesopotamian religion, mythology, but also Canaanite. I mean, you look at, if you read through like the Baal cycle or, you know, these other Ugaritic poems and texts, I mean, you'll see very clearly uh, that there's, there's direct influence, there's indirect influence, there are polemics. Um, I think Genesis 1 is a great example of a text that is a polemic against uh, a Mesopotamian myth. Uh, so, you know, Genesis 1, it even starts off the same way. Um, so the, the, the uh, very important, I mean, incredibly important text, the Enuma Elish, which is the, uh, the text that talks about the ascendancy of Marduk uh, over the other deities, starts off, you know, Enuma Elish are the first words, so when on high, um, and that's that that type of clause, uh, you know, dependent clause is how Genesis one starts. You know, when God began, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Um, and it's I think it's very clearly a a, a polemic against it. And I'm, even more perhaps so is the flood story. You know, we were just yes. talking about the the capricious nature of the Mesopotamian deities and Lil, you know, bringing the flood amongst other things that he brought to decimate humanity. Because they were they were multiplying too much and making too much noise, and um, the god of the so I mean Enlil is actually said one of the other deities Ea actually says to him you've done this evil thing, I mean so so the like in the Mesopotamian story Enlil is not the good guy, right? Um, so if you're going to then incorporate that, so let's say you're a Judean scribe and you're you're you know trying to put down this tradition uh, about a flood and you've got this Mesopotamian story is your background. Well, how do you like, how do you write your story where it's clear that you're pulling from and you're utilizing that that flood myth that you see in places like Atrahasis, um, and yet turn it to your like spin it in in, in your favor? 
So it's not about Marduk, it's about your God. Well, one of the things that you do is you, you can't have Yahweh being evil. You can't have Yahweh, you know, bringing a flood because people are noisy. I mean, that's, that doesn't look good. Uh, so if you look at Genesis 6, 1 to 4, I mean, it's like, you, you can't, it's hard to find a passage there in the beginning of Genesis 6 that talks about how wicked humanity was. I mean, you know, all the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. I mean, it's like, well, they bad. The, the, okay. the, generally, what I get the sense, like like I said, the Abrahamic religions, the the trilogy, you know, the three, they they kept copying and pasting from each other. They have, they are very awful at like looking at the human human beings. It's like they don't they don't support being human. It's like the human being is always bad. You know, it's always negative. It's always like you're awful punishments and stuff. And there was this Iraqi writer, and he's a historian. I mean, it's it's amazing. He did like an extensive work. If you read Arabic, I'll send you his stuff. Uh, he he went through the trying to find the missing link, and he was hypothesizing that he has like the Sumerian uh, king lists, how it, they were turned into the uh, prophets in the Bible. Like he linked mm -hmm. them with each one of the prophets, including Adam. And he's, he turned it back to the first king in Eridu, I think. Yeah. And he says when mm -hmm. he uh, has the the first one that says, you know, I got uh, the, the power from the sky, you know, instead mm -hmm. of just. And it, it's fascinating when he weaves all these together and explains all these things that how they were influenced from that. And what, what do you think? Yeah, you I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any question. Um, Seth Sanders uh, is a, a professor that a doctor that wrote on this um, in a in a very specific way. He's comparing um, Enoch, you know, if you know the figure from the Bible, yes. Enoch, to um, Adapa, and Adapa is he's this like wise uh, um, sage of Enki. Of yeah, he, he's his follower, or, or what do yes. you call it, his minister. Like, That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm translating for yeah. uh, from Arabic. Even the name is called yep. Adapa. Mm. Yeah, and you know what? The, it's it's interesting to see the connections between uh, a text, you know, like uh, the Book of First Enoch, which is you know, admittedly much later, maybe the third century uh, BCE. But the, you know what First Enoch talks about in you know this this. You guys probably know the story, but for other people that that maybe don't, um, the angels. That story from Genesis six is developed quite a bit. So in Genesis six, you have angels coming down and having sex with with human women and you know giving birth. Well, uh, that story is really developed in the Book of Enoch, First Enoch, and now these angels, you know, gives the whole backstory, gives their names, and it talks about they 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 make a pact together that they're going to all go down and have sex with these women, <laughs> um, and then their offspring and these giants, and you know one of the things that happens is not only do they do that, you know, that intermingling, you know, making things impure or whatever, but they also teach humanity some of these like more divine wisdom things, you know, these uh, things that are only supposed to be for the gods um, or the gods are supposed to give them out in a certain way. It just depends on, I guess, the way, the way you uh, interpret the text. But uh, this is what th this theme, you see it uh, throughout the ancient Near East 
right? And even in Greek sources, Prometheus, is that the one that teaches? Yeah. Uh, teaches, yeah. teaches brings fire? light, yeah, brings yeah. light to the humans. So, like this trope um, of some some intermediary bringing wisdom from the heavens to uh, to the earth. I mean, you see it in the Adapa myth. Adapa ends up going up into heaven, and he's offered this food and drink that will give him more immortality. And uh, he 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 declines it because his master, you know, Aya told him not to take it. And you know, the, the, it's it's a way of it's all about this wisdom that. Uh, it gets down to earth, but how does it get down to earth? And how does it stay on earth? And how is it um, sort of segregated off? You know, in the Gilgamesh epic, you see Utanapishtim, who's the I, flood I was going to mention the Gilgamesh epic, <laughs> actually. Yeah. What, they should teach that epic in school mm. a lot. I agree. Because we all grew up infused with the Abrahamic sense of things, right? And then the first time I read it, and I was like, wait, what the... Just happened, like, you know, you, common sense. You give it to any kid, they will make the connection. And especially, yes. like I said, you know, coming from the Muslim stuff in the Quran, there's a, a piece in there, it's like smack down in your face. I mean, whoever copied the story didn't even make an effort to like, you know, <laughs> twist it a little bit. But Moses was like, God damn it. Can you at least try? But the So in school, they should teach everything else and then you should uh, as a prerequisite you need to read the Gil gilgamesh epic because that oh, one yeah. piece of literature explains a lot oh yeah and then you have the yeah, uh, what do you call it the shurupak list of uh, advices yeah the instructions of shurupak yeah the instructions yeah. of shurupak that i mean that's yeah. it game over yeah i mean there's there's so many texts um and, and I would say the Baal cycle would be uh, that Ugaritic text, reading that in English translation or in, in translation uh, would be amazing. Yeah. Because the, you, the, these these texts, they form cultural background. So in volume two of the book, uh, I have an entire chapter that's going to be dedicated to just ancient Near Eastern background. So things like cosmology, religion, uh, myths, law. Uh, you know, those types of things, just to, to give the reader this broad background to not just the history, because we do the history in, in volume one, uh, but now sort of the, the, the rest of the story, because um, things like omens, medical texts, you know, the way that they do science and how it comes through in, in the law collections and then ultimately in the way we see the law codes or, you know, the law section structured in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it all goes together. Um, and I think having that broad background will be really useful. Oh, it does. And there's an extensive, like they left extensive records of these things like that Iraqi writers I was mentioning. I mean, this guy is amazing. He did these books about this stuff. He just zeroed in on ancient Egypt, like a book, 600 pages or mm. 700. Wow. Just about like how they eat. I mean, he didn't go to like historical stuff. He Research and they have the records, how they eat, what the customs are, what they do, how they get married. It's all there. And then he goes also to the uh, Babylonians, you know, the Ashur, Akkad and all that stuff. And he for each That's one, awesome. he made a book. I mean, years of work. And yeah. these people left a lot of records, you know. Yeah. So but the, the, in the Bible, if I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say this and I want to see what you think for real. Like, Give us your assumption. It's just a theory. Do you think, you know, the people who wrote 
the Bible, like the first, let's go back to the first dudes who just sat down to write the Old Testament. They were sitting there in some desert, pointless. They made no contributions. They have no identity. They just look around these big civilizations, right? You have, you know, the Egypt one side and everybody else on the other side. So they tried to give themselves purpose. They wrote some stuff. And also you can sense that because they have so much envy and hate in their books of these big civilizations. Um, because we have to place these people who wrote these books somewhere. I mean, why they hate yeah. so much the other civilizations that actually made contributions? So it's probably, it's probably really complicated the way that the, the final form of the Hebrew Bible came together. Um, and like I'm writing the chapter on the Exodus right now and just talking about what, what, what do we know? about uh this thing that did it happen is there anything like it uh is it just some some memory that they're drawing from and i think that that aspect of this kernel of historical truth you know historical memory plays a pretty big role in the way these things developed particularly in the hebrew bible so there are lots of different ways i think that uh data the material came in for the hebrew bible i mean i, I definitely think that we have actual they, you know, the people, the scribes that were putting things together um, at certain points had access to like earlier, I don't call them historical records, but I mean, maybe for lack of a better term, records that talked about things that happened um, when they when they put these. I mean, the text goes so far as to say that at times. Um, so but those are more, you know, the more historical sounding books so like Kings. Uh, and I think even in Samuel, I think Samuel is you know, the, 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 whoever puts Samuel together, the, you know, the Deuteronomist or whatever, it's putting all this stuff together, it's pulling from um, earlier materials. I like, I don't think David is made up out of whole cloth is what I'm saying. Um, so, but the, that for me, the, the bigger or the more interesting, the more interesting aspect of this is looking at how they utilize other mythology, the other texts, uh, other stories, other religious texts, and how they incorporate them and rework them for themselves. And the example that I always give about this, because you mentioned like uh, earlier, like direct borrowing in the Quran, it's cut and paste, right? How you how you described it. Well, to us, you know, we would call that like forgery or plagiarizing. Yeah, copyright you know, forgery, infringement. Call that plagiarizing. <laughs> yeah, right. Copyright <laughs> infringement. They didn't really look at it that way. Um, so the example that I like to give is that that really important story, the Enuma Elish. The, the the story about Marduk and it's recited at the New Year's festival every year. Uh, that story was incredibly important, not just to the Babylonians, but also to the Assyrians. Uh, you know, Babylonia is sort of like this religious center. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's Sumer, right? Of it's course, like, it's you know, the big thing. It's, yeah. So, you know, they, the, the Assyrians revered, they often hated the Babylonians, <laughs> but they revered them, right? Um, and, and, and the cultural aspects that, you know, religious things that went behind. I mean, you got Nippur down there, Uruk, or, I mean, you've got all these big kish. The major these, spots. Yeah, I mean, and they're, they're big for uh, religious purposes. And so uh, this, this New Year's festival uh, where this text was recited, you know, is something that the, the new Assyrian king would come down and, it, like, he would submit himself, the king would submit himself, to the, the head of the Marduk priesthood. I mean, it was a big deal, right? So um, at one point at, later in the Neo-Assyrian period, you know, Sennacherib 
was having real problems keeping control of the South, keeping control of Babylonia. And eventually he just kind of had it up to here with them. And he went down and it seems like he did some bad stuff to the city of Babylon. Dropped a hammer. <laughs> yeah, it's what it seems like. Uh, and what we then see is a bunch of texts were taken back up to the north, taken back up into um, into Assyria. And it's at, it's at this point that we see an Assyrian version of the Enuma Elish. So if you think about it, um, and you guys may know all this stuff, so I apologize if you do, but you know, just in case there are people listening that don't. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the Enuma Elish, this story about Marduk, it, Marduk is the god of the south, right? He's the god of Babylonia, the main deity. Um, and it talks about how he single-handedly, like, saves all the other gods uh, by killing Tiamat. Um, and at the end of the at the end of the text, there are these fifty names that are given to Marduk, playing off of his Sumerian, the way his yeah. uh, his his name is written in cuneiform. Well, that text shows up in the north, and what, like you can go look at it, like see fragments of it everywhere that you that Marduk. Everywhere his name was, they just replaced it with Asher, <laughs> and they they did a slight modification, a very very slight modification at the very beginning of the text. But the story just stays the same. They just everywhere that Marduk's name is, they replace it with their god Asher, you know, who's the the main deity of the north. Yeah. Well, I mean, we look at that today and we go, yeah, that's obviously copyright. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, come on, guys, like so. The first question that when I, you know, when I was studying this, the first question that came to my mind was, well, like, these people knew clearly the the story of the Enuma Elish when they heard it every year. So what are they just buying into the idea that it, it was Asher all along? And I mean, the thing is, when you replace Marduk's name with Asher, the, the last section of the of the of the uh, the text just makes no sense. Because all those fifty names are based off of Marduk's name, you can't you can't base them off Asher's. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> but the 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 salient point, the thing that I think is important to to draw out from that is that it wasn't so much a question of did it happen exactly this way. I don't think that was the issue. The issue was your text says Marduk, and what we're going to do. It's almost like. Um, I don't know. It would almost be like uh, I, my kids have a Nintendo Switch yeah. upstairs, <laughs> right? And if you, it, it, one of them likes to play Mario Party, and the other one likes to play Mario Odyssey. Well, when you when you push the little, you know, dis, uh, I don't know what you call it, the little game, the joystick. Well, I was thinking the game piece, the little oh, square yeah. game the, piece, yeah, yeah, the cartridge. The cartridge. That's what it is. When you push it down and pop it out and put the new one in, everything changes. Right. It's not a matter. You don't have to rework the whole console. Yeah. It's just a matter of my game is in there now. OK, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Ooh. actually a good analogy. You're not building and a new switch. You're happening. just putting a new card. Yeah, that's right. And and it didn't matter. I mean, it's it, it didn't matter that the story didn't change. It was it. There's power. They were taking ownership <laughs> of it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So just say and that we own this mythology now. And, and it didn't even matter that did it happen this way or didn't it? The fact that Asher's name is now in the story in and of itself gives it, imbues it with power, yeah, imbues this idea with power. And that's why when you come to, um, you know, like, what is it, Psalm? I always forget which Psalm it is. Um, 
where it talks about Yahweh as the rider on the clouds. It might be Psalm 136. I can't remember. 132. I don't know. I'm probably way off. It's probably like 73 <laughs> or something. But Psalms aren't things that I work with. But uh, you know, it talks about how Yahweh is the rider on the clouds. That's an epithet of Baal. I mean, strictly an epithet of Baal. Wow. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, ah, uh-uh, not Baal, mm-hmm. Yahweh. Yahweh is the one that does this. And, and that's why when you look at these stories where it's clear that Genesis 6 through 9 is utilizing an older Mesopotamian tradition, like there's no question, it's this consensus scholarship, um, that it didn't matter that they're essentially reusing the story. They're reworking it in just the right way to say, actually, Yahweh is the one that brought the flood. And look, Yahweh did it. Man, no, 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 that makes sense so much, the way he explained yeah. it. Wow. Hey, Dean. Yeah. You know what we got to do now, right? What? We got to just take the New Testament, replace God's name with this Cthulhu. Yeah, that's we're it. Set. We're going to do the same <laughs> thing. We've been discussing it for a while. It's like, we're going to take Cthulhu and just drop it in there. And there take all go. three there books, compile them together, and, and just go for it. But... To say why there is so much, why there's so much despise for like Egypt Mm. and Babylon in those books. I understand, you know, people will take and borrow from each other. Did they inherit animosities, you know, because these are two past, like, you know, Russia and the United States. And then you have in the middle some nobody and then wrote a book and then taking a shit on Russia and the United States. Yes, they're big powers. They did some things, but they're also, they did some good stuff and all that. So what's the hate? And now we have to live with that hate. Like now we have yeah. like pharaohs and assholes. Now the records are showing the pharaohs were not assholes. Right. They were actually decent right. people. So, and then yeah. Babylon were not, was not filled by whores and shit, you know? <laughs> so how, yeah. So how now we are all have a reflex in your head. When you hear Babylon, you yeah. hear it. When you hear Pharaoh, it's like a piece of shit. How can we get rid of that and correct well, history? Yeah, I think knowing where it comes from. Right. And this is why I think understanding the history of the region, the geography of the region, these things are so important. And, and again, I know what I'm getting ready to say, you guys know. Um, and probably your audience knows too, but just in case. That's the point the of doing that, this to make them know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's why we need you. <laughs> so the Southern Levant, you know, that, that, that Palestine, you know, where, where these things are taking place in Israel and Judah, um, it's this narrow strip of land along the Mediterranean coast. And off to the to the east, you've got desert, right? It's really hard to traverse the desert. Tough terrain. Um, yeah. And, and, and so, but then you've got all of Anatolia, you know, you've got Syria, yeah. Mesopotamia, further off to the east, you've got Iran, the Indus, all that stuff, you know, all, everything's off to the east. And then you come through this little strip of land and then you've got Egypt, know, Nubia, all that, all that stuff. Um, so how, how do you get from even Greece? How, how do you, how do you get down to, uh, the South and how does the South get back up to the North? It's got to go through Palestine, right? It's the route. Um, it's the route. And that's why there are two major routes that, that run through, uh, the King's Highway and the, uh, uh, the way of the sea, right? You've got, you've got two major you know, land routes that go through uh, Palestine. And because of that, uh, you have interaction all the time between these major powers on both sides of, of, of whoever was living in Canaan, 
right, in this land. And furthermore, <clears throat> or coupled with this, is the fact that nobody in Canaan is ever terribly powerful, right? There were periods that the Canaanites, uh, you know, like during the third millennium, you see them sort of grow and expand. You get this big monumental architecture, and they 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 kind of grow up. And then at the end of the third millennium, you it seems like we have some type of a, a climactic change, uh, you know, and, and that you know the drying out of the region, and so people leave the cities because they can't sustain themselves with uh, agriculture anymore. They go move into more pastoral nomadism. And then later on during the Middle Bronze Age, they come back because the, you know, everything sort of comes back, rainfall comes back. And so then people move back into these major cities and build them back up. And then, But the point is that particularly by the time you get to the late Bronze Age, uh, there's a period of time called the Amarna period. Yeah. And we know so much about it because we have these, you know, 380, 382, I think, different texts that we found in the city, the Egyptian city of El Amarna. Um, and they tell us about two types, two types of countries, two types of nations, those that are part of the great powers club. So Assyria, Babylonia, Egypt, Hatti, Mitanni, Alashia, you know, Arzawa. These are like major powers and they all call each other brother and they all send gifts to each other. It's this international diplomacy, period of international diplomacy. And caught in the middle of all of it is the land of Canaan. And we know that the, the land of Canaan is just full of these little city-states, these sort of nobodies. Um, you know, so uh, we have letters, the bulk of the letters that we have that were found in Amarna are between the pharaoh and his vassals in Canaan. So there, there are all these little infighting city-states. Egypt is in control of Canaan for the, the late Bronze Age, uh, down into like the 12th century. Yeah, I think they maintain control. And you can imagine uh, the way that this is set up. Egypt like has outposts, has officials. They bro they've broken up Canaan into provinces, two or three of them, I think. I mean, it's a like it's it's bad news for the Canaanites um, because Egypt is like pulling slaves from there. Egypt is pulling tribute. Like they're under the, the, the dominion of, of Egypt. You know, there's, there's a little bit of interplay later with Hatti in the North and, but for the, for the most of it, you know, you can just, Egypt controls Canaan. So like they're, they don't have any real power. Um, there's, they're seeing these major, powers come through their land and work things out. Uh, and then furthermore, uh, so getting down now to like the biblical period, once uh, right around 1177, I think is when Eric Klein dates it, uh, there's this civilization systems collapse that takes place all throughout the Mediterranean. And that causes Egypt to lose control over Canaan, and which allows these independent, you know, uh, independent nations to break off and to start to develop themselves. So now you see the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, right? The Philistines, the Philistines are part of the Sea People's Movement that came down and they came back up into Canaan. So now they're settling along the coast. So now Israel, what, what ultimately becomes Israel, this Canaanite group of Canaanites um, that coalesce and move up into the highlands, what is defining them seems to be, uh, or what is un uniting them together is 
probably fighting with the Philistines, with the Edomites, with the Ammonites, all these people that are around them. And of course, there's already animosity that's built up uh, with, with Egypt, right? Because they've been enslaved, the Canaanites were enslaved for all that time. So now Israel develops its own identity uh, in, in contrast to the, the, the place around it. So when you see, um, look at places like the uh, book of Amos or the book of Ezekiel or Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, you see this type of text that's called the oracles against the nations. And that's exactly what you see. Um, the prophets are, are talking shit, essentially, uh, <laughs> about all these, like, all these nations that are around them. The e Edom is going to be utterly destroyed, and the Ammonites, God's gonna, always going to wipe them out. And, so they were know, interpreting the their frustrations on these texts. So they were, like, yeah, ref I, reflecting I, that on the, in the texts. Yeah, I, I think it's just it's the natural. It's the way that 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 it developed. They 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 didn't like these people. Um, so we can consider the Bible, so, I guess, a propaganda piece. <laughs> oh my God! Of course, yeah. I, I mean, mean, it's obvious. Age, I mean, every, we're we're, yeah, I mean, all, we're crapping on each other. I mean, so I'm every, gonna call you stuff. You're gonna call me stuff, and it goes down in a book. I mean, if you know, if you read through uh, Neo-Assyrian royal inscriptions, I mean, you see the exact same shit, right? I mean, like. <laughs> Um, you, you read and, and that we have lots of them, which is really cool. You mean, go, you can go read them from the, you know, from the originals. Uh, but I mean, these, the, these royal inscriptions will say things like, you know, the, the new Assyrian empire, one of the things that sort of defined them was this, uh, annual campaigning, particularly out to the West. And so they would, the King would go and he'd do a circuit, right? He'd go campaign every year. He'd go out and campaign, get tribute, you know, and, and subject you know, these people. And when you read about that, I'd be like, that's some shit to do to people, right? <laughs> so how do you justify it? Well, you read through these royal inscriptions and they're like, uh, the god Asher, you know, their deity, extended his benevolent arm out to the nations, you know, that are over here to the West. And they spurned his benevolent, you know, mercies and love and and fought and rebelled against the god Asher. And so as the king, I have to go, you know, subject the rebellious, wicked people that are out to the West because, you know, I'm doing this for God. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's what you see in the Bible. Like, come on, people. <laughs> this is this is not complicated. Um, this 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 creating of the other. So to sort of I'll finish that up and then I'll stop rambling. But um, no, by the time going, you get man. to... <laughs> <laughs> it you know, is enlightening the the and, <laughs> and, and fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's so at the end of the eighth century, of course, you know, 722. This is when the northern tribe, this is when Samaria falls uh, to the Assyrian Empire, New Assyrian Empire. And then, um, you know, what, 150 years later, or something like that, in 586, under the Neo Babylonian Empire, this is when Judah, Jerusalem falls, right? And all these people in Jerusalem. So, so you've got people from the north that have trickled down, have come down into the south, right? Some of them were taken away. Some of them people were brought in. But you've got people that were left in the land, and it's been decimated. So they kind of make their way down uh, into, into the south, into Judah. And now, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar II comes along, kicks ass, takes names, and, you know, 586 destroys, you know, the, the temple and— uh, you know, now he 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 brings uh, all these you know all these people uh, into captivity, and so now 
animosity has built uh, with with the Babylonians who have who've done all this stuff to them, and of course with the Assyrians, uh, which were done to people up in the north. And so they spend you know sixty some years in captivity there, and then in five thirty nine Cyrus comes along and and frees them. The Persian Empire frees them, and they they're allowed to go back. Well, I mean they've spent seventy years in captivity. They've heard every year that they've been there, this Akitu festival, right? I mean, like they, they heard the Enuma Elish. They know all about Marduk. They know yeah, all about their mythology. They're familiar with the materials. Very familiar. So what you would expect if you're going to write a polemic against uh, a particular, you know, group of pe people's mythology, I mean, you're going to see some, you're going to see some, some stuff worked out against the Babylonians. And so, like, the animosity existed with Egypt, probably just by tradition, uh, but certainly, you know, you see interactions throughout the first millennium uh, with, with Egypt and Palestine. And, uh, you know, then you have them going into captivity. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, th like, that animosity, I would be surprised if I didn't see it. Um, and it, it comes out in the text. And I mean, the, the, the passage was at Psalm 137 that everybody... Uh, quotes all the time about blessed is he who dashes your little ones up against you know their heads up against the rocks. Oh God! This is like God it, it's funny it. to hear apologists. Yeah, I mean it's funny to hear apologists tackle that because they're like, oh, you don't understand the context because this is just them. You know they're in captivity in Babylonia and they're they're really upset and so this is just sort of hyperbole. But this isn't God. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you know to. Christian apologist, but go read through the prophets. <laughs> like the, the word of the Lord is, I'm going to kick ass and take names, right? Of all of your enemies. This is just in keeping with what's coming in their minds. So like Psalm 137, it's not good. You can't just sort of, you know, you know, sort of brush it off and say, that's just people being upset and well, talking. Well, the the, it's the same tactics, just like in Islam, try, they're trying to explain you know, a genocide of an entire tribe of Jewish people in there that their prophet just literally chopped them in one day. Well, the, the you know, God came to him and said, you got to continue and, and do all this stuff. The reality is he just came back from a fight and he got his teeth kicked in. He's broke. He has soldiers he needs to pay. And there's, you know, a, a bunch of Jewish uh, people there just chilling, working. Okay, they have money. They have uh, some lands we need. We need cash. And that's the pattern for the last, I don't know, yeah. the last eight years of his life or something. That was the patterns. Like the guy was like going to war every month. You know, you gotta. So it's the same tactics. You can't justify these things. So in, in summation, as, as I guess. As much as they try. Yeah, we can't. Yeah, sorry. So we have to agree now that this, these books or this book, the Bible, it's, we can't, we can't trust a book that is propaganda slash emotionally infused with hate and, and shit because people were having things I mean, against each other. I can't trust a document yeah, like I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, Can I? I guess it depends on what you mean by trust. Like, there, there, are different, there are different things that you can pull. So take let's take it away from uh, the Bible or the Quran or anything that people might be sensitive about. Take it. Let's just take it back to. Um, We're trying to like help the them get over Chronicles. the sensitivity. <laughs> right. Right. Well, this I think this will hopefully this will do it. So, like the Babylonian Chronicles, right? We have uh, we have uh, or take make it make it something really propagandistic. These royal inscriptions that we see. You can look at Sargon's Eighth Campaign. This really long text that talks about 
Sargon fighting Urartu up to the north. Well, I mean, he says some crazy ass shit in there, right? Like he <laughs> single-handedly ran ahead of his armies and took a, like a bronze axe and cut through the mountain himself, you know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, did that happen? Mm, probably not, right? But did they fight Urartu? Yeah, I mean, uh, like we know they did. Um, so there's a difference between what what I see as many Christian apologists is sort of swallowing the pill whole and saying, <laughs> okay, well, if it said that the sun stood still for a goddamn day, well, it must have stood still for a day. And if Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, well, then he was swallowed by a big fish. And we have to find articles that show how people can be swallowed by fish. And it's like, eh, miss me with that shit. You know, there's another way that you can that you can do this. And the other way is to recognize the propaganda, to recognize you know when it is that they're saying something that you can say is historically reliable. A, a perfect example, David. Joel Baden wrote a book. Uh, he's up at Yale and a Hebrew Bible scholar, brilliant guy. Um, and he wrote a book on David. And David has his own apologetics. He has his own political spin in the book, uh, like in, in, in the writings there in the Deuteronomistic history. So if I were to say to you, um, hey, there's a you know, like if you went up to a police officer on the street and you said, hey, there's a guy uh, that sent three men to this this store owner who's got this big bay window, this like big, beautiful storefront, glass storefront uh, or glass window out front. I can't think of what it's called now. And um, and he, he the, the three guys walked inside and said, that is a beautiful window. Be a shame for anything to happen to it. Tell you what we're going to do. If you pay us $10,000, we will make sure that nobody breaks that window. Or uh, even better, <clears throat> hey, you need to pay us $10,000 because for the past month, we've been making sure that nobody breaks your window, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, you know, the cop, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy, right? You know, and this, this. well, I mean, obviously the mobster people yeah. that are coming in Extorting. and threatening the shop owner yeah. we're going to bust up your window if you don't pay us 10 grand well he's the bad guy well you know in the book of samuel david sends a couple of his guys ahead to this guy um uh uh naval and says uh hey uh we've been protecting your sheep <laughs> like oh. your flocks out in the fields That's so <laughs> you you need to give us some some money and some resources and the guy naval says what? No. Well, then all of David's henchmen come, including David. And lo and behold, Naval ends up dead. And David has possession of his wife and all his stuff. Wow. Well, I mean, that's mobster shit. But if you read through the book of Samuel, my God, David is a hero. And that Naval guy, man, he is awful. In fact, his own wife goes out to David and apologizes for how stingy he was for not taking care of David's men. I mean, it's like you this can see is the spin. this is hilarious because the same tactics. Muhammad goes to Medina. Uh, he's fighting with his own people and family. He goes randomly to these people living, minding their own business. Says, "Okay, you need to sign this piece of paper to help me out and do stuff." And you know, those Jewish tribe of Christians are saying, "Look, man, we don't want to get into trouble. We're the, always the first one to get punched. You know, you have problem with your family." Well, no. Now they are traitors because you know the other yep. the other tribe came to fight him. Now you're tr you you know you you betrayed me and you deserve punishment. So let's take your yep. stuff. And guess what? Because he has a gang of thugs with him, 
and he has a bunch of people coming in, he needs rooms for them to stay and stuff. So it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, how can, <laughs> then how can we trust the these people who are using the same tactics for centuries? Right. So in the same vein, that's a really good example, a good comparison. <laughs> so in the same vein, we could say, all right, yeah, I mean, David did this, right? We could say that David had this gang of Apiru and he went around and did this sort of militant shit, right? And, and, and extorted people. So from a historical standpoint, we can say he probably did that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we say that we, we now follow David or uh, the, the messages that he gave, like his advice or something that we see in the text. Do we follow that? No. I mean, in the same way that we can say Sargon, whose name Sharukin means the king is legitimate, he could probably know that it, he wasn't legitimate, right? He's probably a usurper. <laughs> um, because why would you name yourself the king is legitimate? Well, you know what? Because you're probably it, not, right? It, I mean, it, it's so... It, it's hilarious that, you know, we laugh at these stuff, but here's the danger, okay? You have a, a billion and a half people on the planet. Mm -hmm. You're born and raised and embedded with this automatic instinct. Jew, bad. Yeah. You know, they're traitors. They killed yeah. Christ or they betrayed Muhammad and everything. It's like you can't shake that feeling from your head. Yeah. I was born into it, so I know how it feels. It's, that's, that's a dangerous yes. proposition. So yes, we yeah. could you know joke about the stories. Now we know that they are just stupid shit or whatever or funny. Yeah. But the impact of this stuff, how can we get rid of that? That's that's yeah. that's what I was saying. Exposing your yeah. work, Assyriology, and all. I think the key and the answer for this stuff is in that the Sumerians, yeah. you know, the Babylonians, all that, all that that area is key. Like it's more relevant and important today than ever. And we have the records. I mean, yeah. these people were awesome at you know, record keeping. They left so much. Yeah. You go to Islam, it's like the most important, holiest of the shit. The 20 years of, there is no records. It's a black hole for historians. They can't find anything. Yeah. So you're, you're telling me you're awesome. Your religion is awesome, but you, you didn't know how to write. I mean, you still can't agree on a version of your book. Do you have 10 readings of it? You know, because yeah. your prophet says it was, uh, you know, sent in seven uh, letters or seven tongues. I mean, come on. So we have, we, we that, that's the fight. Yeah. And I think I, I, to sort of piggyback on that, I think um, a really good example of this that would be, that I think everybody listening would agree to uh, is Naram Sin. So Naram Sin, if, if people don't know, was uh, the grandson of Sargon of Akkad, who was the, the, created the first dynasty in Mesopotamia. And Naram Sin did some pretty amazing stuff created this whole administrative system, you know, developed it. Uh, he, he was just very industrious, what he did. But there was a point in his reign when he was attacked. Now, the texts that we have, and we have their contemporary texts, they're not like thousands of years later, they're contemporary texts, and you can go see them, uh, talk about, in many different places, talk about how he fought nine battles in one year. And some of the texts talk about, they actually name who the participants were, these coalitions that were formed, one from the north, one from the south. At any rate, they, they say that they attacked his city of Agade, Akkad, and uh, he defeated them. And because of this uh, great defeat that he, he was able to uh, you know, perform, the people of the city of Agade were so excited and so grateful that they requested of all the gods that they make Naram Sin 
divine. So we have documents, contemporary documents talk about this, right? Stories, texts, royal inscriptions, we got it, right? You can go read it. Well, then we start seeing in the administrative tablets, like in the cuneiform tablets, that are not propagandistic. They're they're like, you know, two sheep and one goat. Yeah, record given keeping, to the basic by, stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, they dated uh, tablets and texts during that time based on things that the king did that year. Well, uh, Naramsin's name starts showing up with the divine determinative. It starts showing up with the, the symbol of the star before his name, which means he's the god. It starts showing up like that. Uh, then we have this victory stele of Naramsin. And, it, you know, anybody can Google it and you can see an image of it. But it's got Naramsin conquering his enemies, the Lulubians, and he's much bigger than everybody else. And he's wearing this helmet that's a horned helmet. Guess what that means? Only the gods wear yeah. the horned helmet. <laughs> means he's a god, right? Then we have later literary texts that talk about, uh, that, that start to vilify Naram-Sin, right? Well, you know, because wh why, why would they single out Naram-Sin to vilify? It's weird. So what's the most reasonable assumption, given all this data? We have contemporary textual data that talks about he was made a god. We know why they, they say he was made a god. We have administrative texts that start showing him as being called a god, we have this, you know, this this uh, stele that has him depicted as a god, and the text on the stele says he's a god. What's the most reasonable conclusion? Well, I mean, nobody's going to answer that and say, well, that he was actually made a god. <laughs> nobody's going to say that, right? We, we all know what the most reasonable conclusion is. He's the king, and he wanted to make himself divine. Well, right. pick pick that up and put it over on something like the 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 uh, divinity of Jesus, right? We have so much more contemporary information and, and, and evidence of Naram Sin being made divine than we do about Jesus being made divine, right? But people are people are willing to go with it, right? Minimal facts, right? The minimal facts. Well, what yeah. are the minimal facts? You know, well, what's the most reasonable conclusion? Well, is it that Naram Sin was made a god? No. And is it that Jesus was actually a god? You know, it's not my field. I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I mean, like, no, <laughs> it's obvious. I don't think so. Um, so just because documents say things and multiple lines of evidence point to things in the textual record doesn't mean that they're true. You have to be able, as a historian, you've got to be able to sort of work through that and go, okay, why might they say that? And and what can we glean from it? It's sort of the whole rake in the rake in the good stuff and shovel out the bad. Like you've got to be able to do yeah. that with these these ancient texts. And uh, well, I think we're I think old. That's, we're, that's the way we're old enough now as a species. We know how we do stuff. You know, it's obvious. You know, it's like yeah. Rome. You know, did that. Everybody did that. You know, your Napoleon did the same thing. Everybody. You know, we know the tactics. So, and then yeah. also, you know, the floodgates of all these records now are pumping through the internet everywhere it's available you don't have to be a scholar anymore to look at this stuff as a matter of fact that's how i came across your channel uh, many years ago like when you guys the first two lessons you put for how to learn sumerian since i was a kid i was always fascinated by sumerians i loved the sumerians since i was a kid but i never thought i'll reach anywhere you know and one day i was like you know what i was trying to learn stuff but it's always good to read the thing in its own language you know, mm. I was like, let me try and see. Maybe there's a book how to learn Sumerian. Bam. One year 
the first two lessons popped and you just i dove right in i was like wait a minute That's awesome. this guy's doing this so i took the lessons man i was like listening to the first channel I was like waiting for the next one and the next one yeah and you know i i'm going back now because the first time i went because i was so fascinated you know it was like that someone actually did this and now mm -hmm. i'm going back and i'm like zero in i'm gonna take one lesson and just like live with it for like a month or something i need to like mm. but that's how i came you across have a, you have a copy of the book no i it's actually that's the next thing i'm getting i didn't know you have a book you know yeah. <laughs> i was like oh wait because i was using the videos over and over and then i realized it's, you have the book this is this is so much nicer uh so we cover all this we cover more a little bit more material in the book but the the nice thing about it is uh megan took some time and like drew out yes hand copies yeah. of stuff yeah. and nice. uh like she really she really did it and the thing is by the time you get to the end of the book you can read that it's brilliant yeah um no the videos awesome. helped but, man i was at work during lunch you know i go and uh, you know I sit there and and i'm like repeating you know writing trying to write this stuff but it was well but know, it was fascinating me, if, i can read me, uh, um, um, yeah. If you can, uh, you know, if you if you feel comfortable sending me a mailing address privately, I'll send you. We'll send you a copy of the book for free. Oh, thank, I was actually going to ask you for, if I could get your what do you call it, PO box or something. I have a book for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I have definitely. something for you. I think you're going to enjoy a lot. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Dr. Josh, thank you very much. I know you have something coming up at uh, nine fifteen or ten fifteen. You said. Oh. <laughs> Glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You see, I, I'm keeping track of you of your stuff. Thank you. I, I knew you have a, a lecture or something going on, so we don't want to keep hey, you um, up. Go real ahead. Real quick, Tim um, is a Jehovah Witness, by the way. Yeah, I, I got. Yeah, I was. I grew up with all that. Um, I know you say you don't uh, do the whole New Testament, but uh, do you maybe offhand, real quick, know what the real big difference between the New Testament and Old is? Like what kind of correlation? Like what, what? What was the main difference? Because I, I was I grew up more with the New Testament being involved with Jehovah's Witnesses. The difference between the Old and New Testaments. Um, or I, mean, like I would say the big name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so it's Testament means covenant, so it's the, like the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Oh, that's um, like I I guess the way that I would describe it is I think the New Testament writers are trying to work out. The messiahship. This is very rough, but I think they're trying to work out how could Jesus have been the Messiah, and we still had him die, right? We we still have these these things transpired. How, how does this how does this fit? How does this make sense? Hmm. So, like, definitely Paul. Like, there's no question. I think that Paul is doing that. Um, like, how do you have a Messiah that dies? How does that work? Um, so they're utilizing the Hebrew Bible as in in a way that like you can have something like Hosea 11 out of Egypt I have called my son and you apply that to to Jesus who fled to Egypt as a child and then came back up like oh, that's not what Hosea 11 one's about come on um right. you know in Isaiah 53 that's not what Isaiah 53 is about you know the suffering servant it's completely different but they're able to take those and sort of like a a near and far referent you know like oh it, it yeah so out of Egypt, I have called my son. Yeah, that had something to do with it, Hosea and his time. But, you know, God is using that to actually inform what was happening here 
in the first century CE. So I think that's probably the best way to describe it is uh, it's much, it's a theological, it's, it's a much more a theological book. Um, obviously the Old Testament has its different theologies as well, but um, they're, they're really like trying to piece together, I think, um, how the Messiah can still fit in with what we see in the Hebrew Bible and yet the events that we saw transpire. Well, if that makes sense. The, the, the Quran tried yeah. to do the same thing. He's, you know, he came to explain how Muhammad is the Messiah, and he told, you know, the Jew, mm -hmm. the Jewish community, they told him, "No, you're not." Well, he accused them for, you know, falsifying the records and saying, "You know, I'm the mm -hmm. Messiah, just like you know your children." So it's the same game. That's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. A, it's just yeah. a continuous cycle. Uh, they, it's funny they do uh, it today. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Yeah. Well, that's why we pray to Cthulhu. We don't see yeah. him. He's in depth in the ocean, so we don't care, it's and he doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke religion. It's not serious. It's not real. <laughs> we'll call it a joke when we got our own temple and we don't have to pay taxes anymore. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, Dr. Josh, man, thank you so much. We could talk to you yes, for hours. We're going to hijack you again. but Sounds good. We'll, we'll this was a lot of fun. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right, what? Well, I will uh I will bow out yeah. and uh, say hi to Megan and the kids. Sure right. <laughs> I definitely will. Right. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Sit uh, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, very, was very insightful. Important, yeah. It was. You just got lectured in ancient stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man, he was uh, there's a lot of that history that I'm completely unaware of, like, but as I said, um I grew up with the New Testament. Um, but I mean, they're, they're, they're similar stories. It's basically the same book. Well, but his yeah. book, I mean, you read the book. I mean, it's packed. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it wasn't a joke. I mean, the title meant what it meant. I mean, I, yeah. I thought it was spot on, man. Which, if you haven't, shout out his book. 100%. Yeah, we have to definitely get volume two. And We're waiting for volume two. It's uh, the, uh, the atheist handbook to the Old Testament. Read yeah. it. God damn it. So you know yeah. the truth. <laughs> On that note, peace, Timmy. Peace. May the tentacles be with you. Mm -hmm.